0: Acts chapter 9, beginning of verse 19. For several days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And in the synagogues, immediately he proclaimed Jesus, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who had made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called on his name? And he has come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down over the wall, lowering him in a basket. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brethren knew it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it was multiplied.
1: Great ideas. ...are a powerful means for shaping lives. Uh, Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. That's a great idea. And it has shaped lives. But there is something more powerful than great ideas in the shaping of lives. And that is persons who've been mastered by those great ideas who live out those great ideas, who embody them for us. So people were moved by John Kennedy not just because they listened to what he said, but because they looked at what he did. His personality, his attitudes, his actions had power to shape lives in his day, even in his dying. Now in the Christian faith, we could apply it like this. Great doctrines are a powerful means of shaping lives. Now, I believe that. Books about doctrine are important. But something is more powerful than a book about doctrine. And that is a life into which this book has sunk so that the doctrine is lived with power and authenticity. It's people Living out truth that have power in our lives to change us, probably more so than the exposition of the doctrine itself alone. It might be an old story of somebody preserved in a biography. There was a stack of new ones out on the table there. At least there was after the first hour. Or it might be a new story, a contemporary story of someone embodying a truth. In a letter, for example, that I got in the mail this week from a man in Illyria, if that's the way you pronounce it, Ohio. A man I do not know who had been reading Desiring God and sent a letter to Multnomah. They sent it to me. I got it a month and a half late. And this man has become now a living inspiration to me. Let me read a paragraph from his letter. I have a maintenance business, and I found that in the manual labor I perform, there is time that my mind is free to meditate on the Word of God. And I have found myself enjoying, as you write hedonistically, the glories and the beauties of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the process, I have memorized 15 books of the New Testament, and I have found the Scripture to be increasing sweet And real and precious as the Holy Spirit takes them and makes the things of Christ real to me. Now, it's one thing to know the doctrine, lay up the word of God in your heart that you don't sin against God. It's one thing to know that in your head. It's another thing to get a letter from a janitor who says that over the last years, Because he loves the Word of God so much, he has memorized 15 books of the New Testament while he washed walls and scrubbed floors. That's power, isn't it? Aren't you moved? I mean, when I read that, I say, look, if he can do that, I can do that too. Biography, whether it is old or new, is power. And so we're studying Barnabas for three weeks. We began last week when a lot of you were on a well-deserved vacation, I'm sure. And we're continuing it this week and next week. Barnabas, a remarkable man, whom Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, admired very much. And my goal is to let you be inspired by this man's faith and achievements. Last week, we looked at chapter 11, verse 24, where Luke says he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And we studied six, six features of his goodness and how each of them came from his faith. Now, today, we want to focus on one of his remarkable accomplishments, namely the making of, Of a great leader. In fact, he was the means of making two great leaders. Paul the Apostle and John Mark, the Gospel writer. Barnabas was the maker of leaders. And my goal today, if you're asking the question now, what specifically would the pastor like to see happen as a result of his message today? I'll tell you in one sentence. I want to see as many of you as possible become leader-makers on the model of Barnabas. I want you to become as much of a leader-maker as you can be, and all of you can be, to some degree. Well, let's begin with a definition. What is a Christian leader? Here's my definition. I'll try two out on you. A person is more or less of a Christian leader as that person has more or less Christian influence in Christian ways. I'll say it again. A person is more or less of a Christian leader as that person exerts more or less Christian influence on people in Christian ways. Or let me try another one. To the degree that you shape other people toward the image of Christ, to that degree you are a Christian leader. Now that's a real broad definition which includes every obedient Christian to one degree or another. Everybody ought to be influencing somebody To one degree or another toward Christ. But now when we think of Christian leadership, we usually have something a little more narrow in mind. So let me try that. I would say Christian leadership in its usual narrower sense is somebody who's good at this. Is good at it. Somebody who, by virtue of personal traits, is a very strong influencer of other people, draws them into the sway of his influence and points them to Jesus as the only source of their true power, joy, glory. Now, my experience in Cameroon and Liberia two years ago and, and more recently with Noel in the Philippines and then alone in Singapore talking to people from all over the world is that Patrick Johnstone, in this book, that I hope most of you have or will have, is right in this assessment of the church's needs around the world. Leadership is the key. There is a worldwide lack of men and women, truly called of God, deeply taught in the Scriptures to lead the churches. People willing to suffer scorn, poverty, the shame of the cross for the sake of the Savior who redeemed them. Those who accurately and effectively expound the scriptures are few, especially in areas where the churches are growing rapidly. Now, there are people who oppose leadership. If we had time, I would love to try out on you The sentence or the claim that I would like to argue for from Scripture, but don't have time to, that goes like this. Opposition to Christian leadership, or let me state it another way. An anti-leadership mentality is born not of a great vision, but of little resentments. An anti-leadership mentality in the church is born not of a great vision for the people of God, but of little fears and resentments. A church without strong leadership is not a democracy of giants. Just check it out across the world. What the world needs according to the scriptures and according to Patrick Johnstone's assessment of the world needs is spirit-filled, Bible-saturated, Christ-exalting, self-abasing, energetic, untiring, persevering, influential, strong leaders who will draw the people of God into their sway, and point them to Jesus Christ for their eternal good and the good of the world. And to get those leaders, we need hundreds and thousands of leader-makers. Leader-makers like Barnabas. And my goal this morning is to inspire you to be as much of a leader-maker as you possibly can be with your unique Personality and gifts. Are you a leader maker? Don't sell yourself short too quickly this morning. I'm talking to every single person in this room. Don't sell yourself short too quickly. For example, Charles Spurgeon was the greatest preacher of the 19th century in London And he tells the story of Mary King, the housekeeper at the school where he lived as a teenager in Newmarket. Here's what he writes. She liked something very sweet indeed. Good, strong, Calvinistic doctrine. But she lived strongly as well as fed strongly. Many a time we have gone over the covenant of grace together and talked of the personal election of the saints, their union to Christ, their final perseverance, and what vital godliness meant. And I do believe that I learnt more from her than I should have learned from six doctors of divinity of the sort we have nowadays. The most significant thing you may do or say may not turn up for 30 years. What are the marks of a biblical leader-maker? I'm not talking about leadership this morning, mainly. I'm talking about leader-making. And Barnabas is a leader-maker. And there are five traits of a leader-maker that come out of his life that I want to look at. Under the providence of God, in the life of the early church... Two great leaders were made by Barnabas, the Apostle Paul and John Mark. Now, as far as we know, Barnabas didn't write one word of the New Testament. But the two leaders that he nurtured wrote one-third of the New Testament. I counted up the pages last night. Mark's gospel and Paul's 13 letters is one-third of the New Testament. And we wouldn't have had those, I don't believe, had God not ordained that Barnabas intervene in their lives. And so I want to look at this man, Barnabas, and look at five traits of a biblical leader maker. Number one, a biblical leader maker risks to support hopeful leaders. He takes risks. Now, where do I get this? Chapter 9, verse 26 has been read to you. The situation is that Saul, the man who hated, breathed out murders and threats against Christians, has been converted. Glory. He's converted. What might become of this man? Well, he shortly after his work in Damascus goes down to Jerusalem to try to join up with the leaders and find out what he can do. And they're terrified. It says in verse 26, they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, is there anybody who will stick up for this man? Is there anybody who will stick their neck out and risk whether this man is a traitor who's just trying to get in on the church so that he can blow it wide open? Is there anybody who sees the mark of grace in this man? And one man does. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And it says in verse 27, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He became his advocate. And what was the result? His ministry flourished there in Jerusalem. And he went in and out, so much so that he encountered great opposition from the Hellenists and had to leave town. And Barnabas watched this man. He watched him. And this is not the last time that Barnabas will, will move on this man's behalf mark number 1 a biblical leader maker takes risks with younger leaders number 2 a biblical leader maker has a good eye and a glad heart for the potential of grace a good eye and a glad heart for the potential of grace now this is recap from last week but a lot of you were were uh, on vacation last week and so let me recap it it's chapter 11 verse 23 you know the situation Um, A church has been planted up there in Antioch by the people who were dispersed after the persecution of Stephen. And the word comes back to Jerusalem. Hey, a church has been born on Gentile soil. Lo and behold, we need to send somebody up there to to uh, make unity here and preserve the, the body. Who should we send? One man comes forward. Barnabas, he can get along with anybody. Send him to the Gentiles. And so Barnabas goes, his ministry is so remarkably successful. It says he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great company were added to the Lord. But notice verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. He saw and he was glad. He had a good eye and a glad heart. For the potential of grace. Of course, the church was imperfect. It was a brand new church. Young churches are imperfect. Old churches are imperfect. But leader makers have heat sensors. Leader makers have heat sensors. And they they adjust them very finely so that when they walk into a new situation, they can perceive embers of grace. To fan. And the other kind of people have buckets, buckets of criticism, wet, cold criticism. And they walk into a situation and they don't need any censors because all they see is ashes, ashes of imperfection. And there go the embers. Leader makers have good eyes and glad hearts for the embers of grace. The best example I know of, in my experience, of this gift is Barb Espland, our missionary to Iligan City, Mindanao, Philippines. She's been here before, and Noelle and I just watched in amazement. I'll show you her picture tonight. We watched in amazement. It's hard to put into words what we saw in this woman. I still haven't quite got it all together, but let me try. She has a good eye for signs of grace. That would be one way to put it. But let me contrast her mentality with what is a common mentality among evangelists and preachers and missionaries. She doesn't seem to have the static crisis mentality that sees people as fixed in their alienation from God and sort of stationary in their qualities, waiting, waiting, waiting until something dramatic happens and they get converted. That's that's just not the way she relates to people. The alternative, and I've tried to find words to describe it, would be something like this. She has a more dynamic view that sees people, to be sure, as really alienated from God, really in need of conversion, but not static, not... Uh, stationary and uh, fixed, but rather in motion, uh, in progress. Um, They are under the influence of 1,000 different things that God is doing in their experience that is moving them and changing them and opening them and convicting them and readying them. And everybody she talks about is on the way to glory. They may be way back there. or They may be here or here. And everything that comes into her life or into their life seems to be understood by Barb Espland as a token of grace. Moving people to God. Incredible hopefulness as she talks about evangelism. Whereas some of us are so inclined to fix people. You know, unbeliever, hard-hearted, can't budge. Instead of seeing them surrounded by invisible influences of God. Moving them. Changing them. And ready as a good eye and a glad heart to just pitch in and fan the ember anytime we see it. Number three. A biblical leader maker is humble and self-effacing. That means they have the beautiful gift of fading into the background while they push other people into the foreground. They don't love the praise of men. They're not addicted to the limelight. Now, where does this come from in Barnabas? Let's go to chapter 11, if you're not there, and look at verses 25 to 26. I've already set the stage for you. Uh, the ministry in Antioch has been remarkably successful. A great multitude have been added to the Lord. This man is overwhelmed with work, and he is a stunning success. Now, what do you do in a situation like that if you're Barnabas? Well, there are kinds of leaders who might say something like this. Well, now I'm a respected leader and successful. I have earned a good reputation for my work. And it is now time to consolidate my gains and establish myself as a prominent preacher in this part of Syria. That's one kind of mentality that some... People have. That's not what Barnabas did. Instead of maneuvering for his own exaltation, he leaves town and goes to Tarsus to look for an assistant. An associate would be a better word. And who does he pick? He picks a man that he knows good and well surpasses him in speaking ability, surpasses him in passion, surpasses him in leadership ability and brings him as his associate to Antioch. Verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a large company of people. And with that strategic investment in Saul's life, Barnabas consigned himself to secondary place in church history. And I love him for it. Don't you? Watch what happens now as Barnabas fades and Paul's shadow envelops him. Like a, an airplane mechanic who fades in the shadow of the pilot who gets the glory. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, the Holy Spirit comes down while Barnabas and Saul and four others are are worshiping and says, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul. Notice the order of the words. Barnabas first, Saul second. That's the way it's been all the way up till this point in the book of Acts. Now they move out on this missionary journey. They go to Cyprus. They go to a city named Paphos. You read about it in verse 7. There's a, a leader there named Proconsul, named uh, Sergius Paulus. And he wants to hear the word of God. And it says in verse 7, he summoned Barnabas and Saul. Notice, Barnabas is still number one in the, in the order. And sought to hear the word of God. But there was this magician named Elimas who tried to turn the Proconsul away from the faith. And it was Saul who exploded with the Holy Spirit. You son of a devil! You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now, we can be almost certain that's not the way Barnabas would have said it. And this is very important. and It's what I'm going to focus on next week. These men are very different. And it exploded between them before it was over. From this point on, Saul is Paul, and he is the leader, not Barnabas. The order of the names changes, and look at verse 13. Now, Paul and his company set sail from Paphos. Barnabas isn't even named. Verse 16, it is Paul, not Barnabas, who delivers the sermon in Antioch of Pisidia. And from now on, when both of them are named, it's Paul and Barnabas, except in a few cases where Barnabas gets back onto his own turf in Jerusalem. I want you to see one more thing as as Barnabas fades behind this man that he's putting forward. Chapter 14, they arrive in Lystra. Paul, by the power of Christ, heals a man. This is so amazing to the uh, Lyconians there that in verses 11 and 12, look what they say. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus. Paul, because he was the chief speaker, they called Hermes. Now, let's think about that for a minute. Zeus is the king of the gods, the father of the gods. His Roman name is Jupiter. Uh, Hermes is the son of Zeus and the messenger, the fleet-footed, flaming messenger of the gods. And his Roman name is uh, Mercury. And when the uh, citizens of this city look at this Barnabas and this Paul, they look at a venerable, older dignified man, and they say, Barnabas must be Zeus. And they look at this fiery-tongued Paul, who does almost all the speaking, evidently, and they say, Mercury or Hermes. In other words, the strategy of Barnabas is consistent throughout. He keeps putting this young man forward as the speaker And as the one who is up front in evangelism. And so behind the emergence of the greatest theologian and the greatest missionary that ever lived, there was a fading Barnabas who put him forward. Now, those two roles have their respective costs to be paid. Barnabas had to pay self-effacement and obscurity. Paul was stoned in Lystra not Barnabas. Sons of encouragement are less likely to be stoned than sons of thunder. But they pay. Fourth, and I'm going to pass over this one very quickly, a biblical leader-maker is patient with the failures of others. And I have in mind here, of course, John Mark, who deserted on the first missionary journey, at least in Paul's mind he did, and uh, Paul would not let him go on the second journey. And Barnabas insisted that he go, and there was an explosion in their relationship. We come back to that next week. Let me pass on to the fifth and final word. A biblical leader-maker is free from materialism. Now, where do I get this? Back in chapter 4, verse 36, Luke tells us, that the apostles gave Joseph the name Barnabas because he was a son of encouragement. And the very next verse says, He sold a field which belonged to him, brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, why did he do that? Well, according to verse 34, it says that he did it, or and others did it to meet the needs of the poor in the Christian community who didn't have anything. Now, that's what Luke, the writer, associates with being a son of encouragement. Namely, being free from the love of his fields so that he could sell it, give all the money to the church in order that needs of people might be met. So I conclude that Barnabas does not love money or things. He loves people. And that is essential if you're going to be a leader maker in the church. Twenty years later, I'm so glad we have this little tidbit in First Corinthians. Twenty years later, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 4, we get a glimpse Of the old man Barnabas still working side by side, thank the Lord, with Paul after their split. And this is what Paul says. Do we not have the right to our food and drink? Do we not have the right to be accompanied by a wife as the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Uh, two things here. I don't think Barnabas is married. I don't think he was married at the beginning. Isn't it interesting if you go back to chapter 4 of Acts, the intention of Luke the writer is to contrast Barnabas when he sold his field and brought all of it to the Lord with whom? Who comes right next. Ananias and Sapphira who sold a field and brought half of it. Why didn't he contrast him with Mr. and Mrs. Barnabas? So She didn't exist. I think that's implied here. All the apostles and the brothers of the Lord, Cephas, they carry their wives around with them. Is it only Barnabas and I that... And then he he shifts into this issue of whether we work for a living. But I think the implication is Barnabas didn't carry his wife around with him either. And so here's what I'm pointing out. From the beginning of his Christian life to 20 years later, Barnabas is lean for the Lord. He is lean. He is lean for the Lord. Here he is with Paul, not accepting one gift of drink or food or support from the church in Corinth. Why? One reason. To make perfectly clear, they minister not for money, but people. Now, they didn't have to, and not every preacher and evangelist is called to, but Barnabas and Paul chose that way, lean for the Lord to the very end. He was free from the love of money and the love of things because he loved people. And so I close by asking you, are you a leader maker and free from materialism? Do you? Here's the way to test yourself. In the moments when you are free to dream about your life and what you'd like to see happen in your life, what do you want to be made of yourself? When you lie in bed at night and you ask questions about what could I be of value in life, does your mind run again and again to clothes, cars, houses, Lake property, sports, profits, stereos, videos, computers, vacations, food, movies, investments. Is that the gravity of your mind? Is it pulled naturally in the times of your dreaming to things, things, things? Is that what fills your mind? Then you're a materialist and not a leader maker. A leader maker like Barnabas, when he lies down or she lies down in bed at night and dreams, they dream about how can I maximize my influence on potential Christians and leaders? What can I do? Could I invite that 11-year-old boy over to spend the night at the International House? Could I get my 2020 group behind that 14-year-old missionary? Could I invite that student over for Thanksgiving dinner and encourage her? Could we give an anonymous gift to that struggling Sim student? Maybe we could pay his way to Urbana. Could I give a note of thanks through the mail for that pastoral prayer? Could maybe we start reading our children at night a missionary biography to get them excited about Hudson Taylor and William Carey and David Livingston. Maybe we should send a letter to that short-termer and then maybe they fall asleep. What do you dream about? Things? Are you in bondage to the mentality of materialism? Or does your mind dream about people? People? People, 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 and your influence in their lives through just a smile, a hug, a note, a dinner. Barnabas is a great leader maker and may we be inspired to make leaders, all of us. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, lover of your church, and Raiser up of leaders and leader makers, be pleased to work through this message, I pray, in the power of your word and the testimony of your servant Barnabas, to produce in us a freedom for risk, an eye for the embers of grace, a humility that is willing to be effaced behind our betters, patience with those who fail, And freedom from the love of money and the bondage to the mentality of things. Oh God in heaven, raise up leader makers in this church. May we all be leader makers to one degree or another to the glory of Jesus Christ. And all the people said, Amen.